All right, good morning. Open your Bibles or navigate to Exodus chapter 25, please. Exodus chapter 25, we're looking at verses 10 through 22 this morning. The topic, God instructs Moses to build the Ark of the Covenant to be a container for the tablets of the Ten Commandments. The title of our message, Ark My Words. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for our morning thus far, filled with worship and praise, the opportunity, Lord, to just step into that and, and enjoy that, whether we sing or listen or pray during that time. We know that you receive it. You say you do in your word, Lord, as, as incense raising into heaven. So we thank you for that. We want to pay attention to your word now. And though it's um, more informational, perhaps, than inspirational this morning, your spirit is here in our hearts and in our midst, Lord, to take this word and encourage us in so many ways, to speak to us between the soul and the spirit, Lord, in a place where only you can communicate. We ask that you would come alongside us and do that. As our teacher, in Jesus' name we pray. And those who agreed said, amen. It was the summer of 1981. Raiders of the Lost Ark was the blockbuster movie. Its 12-minute opening is still considered to be one of the greatest action sequences of any film. You remember the guy covered with spiders? They were actual tarantulas. And the problem was, during the filming, they were all males, and they wouldn't move after being placed on his body. They just sat there. So the director, Steven Spielberg, was frustrated, so he had the crew's spider wrangler add one female, and then they all started going crazy. And Spielberg said, well, here, the actor, Alfred Molina, is quoted, and he says, they're running onto my face, and Steve is going, shoot, shoot, look scared, and I'm, I am scared, I am scared. So that's a great sequence for those of you who love spiders. While Indy was busy trying to find and save the ark from the Nazis, a group of archaeologists in the real world did discover a lost ark. Eric and Carol Myers made the discovery in the Nabratine uh, region of the Upper Galilee, caused a temporary worldwide sensation. It wasn't the lost ark of the covenant. It was a fragment from what is called a synagogue ark. That's the chest that holds the scrolls in the local synagogues in which Jews worshipped. Has anyone found the lost ark of the covenant? If so, where is it? Well, before we answer, we should talk about what it is. The human race first encountered it in our verses here in Exodus 25, when Moses was given plans for its construction. I'll organize my comments about it around two points. Number one, you get a first look at the ark of the covenant. And number two, you go looking for the lost ark of the covenant. So let's get our first look. You know, it actually turns out that Raiders of the Lost Ark wasn't so far off about the Nazis. There's a book... Uh, written by Eric Kurlander, a professor of history at Stetson University called Hitler's Monsters, a supernatural history of the Third Reich. And he documents facts like some Nazi leaders firmly believed that the Aryan race descended from aliens who established Atlantis. Now, these guys were a lot crazier than we even think. SS officer Otto Rahn was obsessed with finding the Holy Grail, the so-called cup Jesus drank from at the Last Supper. Hitler was particularly interested in finding the spear that pierced Jesus' side, sometimes called the spear of destiny. Now, the Nazis believed these objects would, first of all, reinforce their claims of supremacy, and second of all, unleash mystical powers that would devastate the Allied forces. 
The Nazis didn't find the Holy Grail or the Spear of Destiny. Neither did they find the Ark of the Covenant. It's not sitting in a crate in a vast government warehouse as portrayed in the Indiana Jones films. Here in Exodus, as God gives Moses the pattern for the tabernacle, uh, he starts with the Ark and moves out from there. And so this is really the first thing that he tells Moses about, 13 verses, the most uh, anything, a description of anything regarding the tabernacle, super important stuff. And so verse 10, they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So think of it as a wooden chest. In Exodus, its name is ark or ark of the testimony. In the book of Numbers, the ark is given another name, the ark of the covenant. Further on in the book of 1 Samuel, it's called the Ark of God. And so it's the same object. Uh, it, it has all of these different names depending on the context. They shall make an ark refers to the chief artisan over the construction of the tabernacle. He was a guy named Bezalel and another artisan named Aholiab. They received the plans from Moses who received the plans from God. This is a good place to bring to our remembrance that we too are considered builders the first apostles are said to have laid the foundation of the church. In Ephesians, we read that the church is, and I quote, a household having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so the, the church, uh, made up of individual believers who are living stones, we are an ongoing building project. But as we serve in that household of faith, we are also builders and we're told to build appropriately. The Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians. He said, now if anyone builds on this foundation, we just read about the foundation. He says, if you build on it with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw... Each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And so the, the Lord wants us to be reminded, as we see the building of the tabernacle, that we are also builders. Uh, and we can build with precious spiritual materials or we can build with uh, worldly carnal materials. Some of you maybe have had the experience of, of you know, having to fix something that was broken at your house and you uh, realize that whoever did the work before you used the cheapest builder's grade material that they could find or that they actually did the job wrong. And so Paul uses that analogy. He says, hey, we want to be good, high-quality master builders in whatever we do, whether it's praying for people or studying the word or sharing our faith, whatever f falls into the purview of being a Christian, we want to be uh, building with the proper materials, with blessed and holy materials. And so we're to think of ourselves as gifted artisans building according to the pattern revealed to us by the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to give credit to a book I'd recommend. It's by Don Stewart, and it's simply called In Search of the Lost Ark. Some of the factual descriptions of the ark itself, I'm going to quote directly from his book. It's a much deeper study of the entire history of the ark, and, and uh, if you're really interested in this topic, that's where I would start, In Search of the Lost Ark by Don Stewart. Now, back to the ark. Acacia wood 
is uh, said to be strong and durable, resisting insects and rot. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, renders the word as incorruptible wood or decay-proof wood. The wood is very light and hard, and it doesn't absorb moisture. And so it's a good, solid wood to build with. The ark was covered with gold inside and out. This probably means that hammered plates of gold were attached to the wood by means of small nails, but it could be some type of gold application that we're unaware of. God gave its dimensions in cubits, which means we don't really know exactly how big it was. The cubit was measured from the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. There is no agreement as to the exact length of the cubit. In every now and then, you, you, um, somebody says, hey, what size shirt do you wear? And I'll say, well, it depends. And you know, sometimes you pick up a large and it's too small and a medium and it's too big. I mean, so you think, who's, who's the standard for these things? And then you realize that they do, different companies do have people that they pick as the standard. and say, hey, you, you're the medium shirt. And so whatever fits you well, that's medium, and then we go from there. But you really can't tell. Sizes are, are like a whole different thing. And then women's sizes, man, now you're out the window there because whatever size it is, it's a two. Uh, and and they, just, you know, they just have removable tags on their clothing. And so it fits, and then I size it. You know, I think I'm a two, so this is a size two. And so, uh, but same thing with the cubit. Uh, the cubit was an individual thing. It was from the elbow to the tip of the finger. Various estimates range from as little as 14 inches to as much as 24 inches. My cubit measures 19 and an eighth inches. Uh, and I did that on my own. The other is kind of hard measuring with one hand. But it's around 19 inches, maybe add an eighth. Using the average 18-inch cubit, the arc would have been 3 foot 9 inches long, 2 foot 3 inches wide, and 2 foot 3 inches high. And so that gives you a, an idea of the actual size of it. But it could have been smaller. It could have been a little bit larger. Verse 11, and you shall overlay it with pure gold inside and out. You shall overlay it and, it shall, make, uh, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. In addition to the gold overlay, there was a molding or a border of gold all around it. And honestly, no one knows what that means either. Not exactly. There are several different ways to interpret that. The more we read, the more we see that there are a lot of details we cannot be 100% certain of. It seems that God gave the general plan to Moses, but that he and Bezalel and Aholiab were directed by the Holy Spirit as the ark was being fashioned. Later in Exodus, God will say, and I quote, I have placed wisdom within every skilled craftsman in order to make all that I have commanded you. And so there's a sense not just of their skill, but of God working with them to fill in the details, as it were. Uh, you know, if I'm, if I'm going to make a box that has gold inside and out, how am I going to do that? Am I going to have hammered plates? Am I going to have a new gold leafing system? Do I invent an entirely new technology? And so there's a, a freedom there which makes it impossible for us to know exactly what the ark looked like. Unless you saw the original ark you could not reproduce it, and that's why there are so many different representations of it. If you go later on and study the ark for yourself and, and look on various sources, they all look a little bit different. They're different sizes, different um, overlays and, and things like that, different levels of decoration. No two of them really look alike. 
Verse 12, it says, you shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And so the ark had these four gold rings, two on each side, and then two poles made of acacia wood. And these poles were covered with gold and permanently inserted into the rings for the ark's transporting. Artists who draw the ark always assume the poles ran lengthwise uh, down the longer side, but it's entirely possible they ran parallel to the shorter ends. That doesn't uh, make as much sense to us logistically, but we're not told. Again, I just want to draw out the fact that there's a lot that we don't know about the ark. One takeaway from this is that ministry can look different. Think of the writers of the New Testament. James and John were very, very different in their tone, yet both ministered the same gospel of Jesus Christ. I'd venture to say that if you announced that James was coming to your church, a lot of people took the weekend off. Uh, if you read his epistle, it can be very, very straightforward. You adulterers and adulteresses. Hi, James, how you doing? Thanks for that word. If John was coming, there'd probably be a line. Love one another. Beloved, love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knoweth God. Oh, thank you, John. You're so sweet. You know, and so they, they same truth, same gospel, and yet minister differently. And this, this kind of is a, a freeing thing because a lot of times people, we have a tendency to, everybody wants to be the same, or you think people should be like you. They should have the same uh, joys and fears and interests, and, and it bothers some people. There was a famous Twilight Zone episode like that. This guy, uh, you know, just was mad at everybody, wished everybody would be like him. And I, I can't remember the, if he woke up one morning or how it happened, but all of a sudden, everybody was him. He started playing, he was an actor, he played all the different parts. He was, and so wherever he went, he acted like himself towards himself, and it was, he was miserable. I mean, he, he saw what a miserable human being he really was. And, and so, you know, we, we don't all want to be alike. Uh, uh, you know, we're individuals and God's made us that way and it's a beautiful thing. And sometimes people get confused, for example, as to why there are so many churches. Uh, maybe you've had this confusion. You know, Lord, you know, if, if, there, if you're true, why, why are there so many churches? Why can't there be just one big church in each town and, and wouldn't we have a greater impact? Uh, and they assume that it's a bad thing that there's a lot of churches, but it's not. It's a good thing. It's a God thing. We're told to worship God in spirit and in truth. There's no one set way of doing that. We're free so long as we do not act unbiblically. Um, there are things, you know, if you visit different churches, they, they have a tendency to do everything a little bit different. They have a different order of service. They sing differently, whether they sit or stand. They do give, put a different priority on the word. They teach the word, some through the Bible, some topically. I mean, there's a lot of different things. Obviously, we enjoy what we do. I, I don't know. I guess we could say that we think it's the best, but it's, it's the best for us. And, and, you know, some people come here. People call all the time, and they're, they move into Hanford. Believe it or not, people are moving into Hanford from time to time. Some of them forced to do that, but then nevertheless, they're, and they, they want to know uh, a little bit about the church. And so I always question them. 
because um, I don't know what they're actually asking. Uh, there's so many things that, you know, and I don't know what activates them. And so I ask them what their background is, what church they're familiar with. And then I try and find out what's the most important thing to them. Is it, you know, ministering to families? Is it speaking in tongues? Is it the teaching of the word? What is it? And depending on what they say, I say, well, you know, here's how we approach that. And quite honestly, I'm not sure you're going to, I would like for you to visit the church and give us an opportunity to minister to you, but I'm not sure you're going to like it here. If, if you're looking for, for example, if you're looking for people to get up every Sunday morning and be able to speak in tongues, uh, you're, you're probably going to be a little bit disappointed here. That uh, is not going to happen. And, and so I recommend some good churches that they feel more comfortable in. Uh, and I, I think that's great that God's raised up different churches for uh, the different sensibilities that we have. And so there's nothing wrong with that. And so it doesn't bother me that I don't know exactly what the Ark of the Covenant looks like. I, uh, it tells me that, that ministry is, is a thing that God puts in our hearts with his wisdom, and we have a, a way different way of doing it, each one of us. And so verse 16, and you shall put into the Ark of the Testimony, which I will give you. Uh, you shall put into the Ark the testimony, which I will give you, excuse me. The testimony referred to the stone tablets on which the Ten Commandments were inscribed. Now, regarding the tablets of the Ten Commandments, I learned something interesting. You probably already knew this, but uh, it's interesting. The Ten Commandments, it says, were written on two stone tablets. And this probably means not what we normally think, that they were some on one side and some on the other, but that there were actually two separate copies of the Ten Commandments. Uh, Later in Exodus either in Exodus or in Numbers, we're going to read that they were written on both sides of the tablet, not just on the side. You know, you always see Moses coming down with the classic tablet and stuff. And, and this suggests, uh, the Bible says that there was writing on both sides of those tablets. And here we see that there were probably two copies. Let me quote Don Stewart. He says, the reason for having two copies of the Ten Commandments has only recently been understood. When a written covenant was made in the world of the Bible... Each party making the covenant had a copy of its contents. If the covenant was between two nations, the two copies would be kept far apart in the temple of the God of each land. In Israel, though, the covenant was between God and his people. Both copies of the Ten Commandments were therefore kept in the ark. And so based on just the, the way people did things at the times. Uh, there would have been two copies of the Ten Commandments written on both sides of the tablets, and they were both to be put into the ark. So verse 17, you shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. The mercy seat is essentially the lid on top of the ark. Those separate articles, they went together. The Bible sometimes uses the term ark when referring to both the ark and the mercy seat. And so, so you have the ark and the mercy seat, but when the Bible talks about the ark of the covenant, it means the entire object, the, the ark with its lid. Mercy seat, not a good translation. No one sat there, for example. Uh, the basic meaning of the Hebrew word kaporeth is to cover. One translator calls it the atonement cover. A language scholar wrote this. He said, the verb that lies beyond the noun in the expression mercy seat means to ransom or to deliver by means of a substitute. It was named after its function to receive the blood of an innocent substitute in order to deliver the offerer from sin 
so that he or she might approach God. And so think of it, this is the place where mankind received God's mercy, not getting what they deserved. And since it was a representation of that, later translators called it the mercy seat, and that is still its popular name today. And, and so it's really the atonement cover is a better translation, but we'll, we call it the mercy seat in a popular way. <clears throat> Verse 18, you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub at one end, the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. Now facing each other at opposite ends of the atonement cover were two cherubim made of hammered gold. Cherubim are winged creatures in God's service. We assume they are an order of angels, but we're never told for sure. The Bible in other passages gives various descriptions of cherubim, but we can't say for sure what the cherubim on the ark look like. We're not told. Uh, again, this would be something that would be resolved in the making of it as God gave wisdom to the artisans. And so the ark was the primary article of furniture in the tabernacle. It was the only thing in the Holy of Holies. There were two chambers to the prop tabernacle proper. I mean, the tabernacle was a, a large uh, in, encampment, basically, with some stuff outside. But there was a, uh, two compartments, the holy place and the holy of holies, separated by a veil. And this was the only thing that was in the holy of holies. We've seen that it's a place where atonement was made. It was also the spot from where God communicated with his people. In verse 21, it says... You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark uh, you shall put the testimony that I will give you, and there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. God spoke with Moses from his glory that was between the two cherubim over the mercy seat. And most likely, Moses stayed in the holy place behind the veil that separated it from the Holy of Holies and the Ark. There are some who think he went into the Holy of Holies and communicated with God that way. But most likely, and most Jewish sources say, no, he remained in the holy place and communicated through the veil uh, with the Lord as the Lord would speak to him. And so it might be best, if you're still getting a handle on all this, to think of the ark as God's throne on the earth. It was the place where he uh, established his sovereignty and his leadership and his kingship really over Israel. Uh, it's where he spoke to his people and received sacrifice so that they might approach him. I'll tell you what the ark was not. It wasn't a magic box that contained God. No Israelite believed God was in the box. When the ark was placed in Solomon's temple, Solomon's prayer showed that the people did not believe God was limited to one area. He said, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Even heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less the house that I have built. And so uh, no one believed that it was a magic box. There were times the ark preceded Israel in battles that they won, but it wasn't a source of power that guaranteed victory to whoever had it. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, the ark was with Israel, but they were defeated and the ark was taken from them by the Philistines. And so it didn't guarantee uh, that you were going to win. It wasn't intended to be a weapon at all. 
The Bible gives no report of lightning, electricity, or any force emanating from the ark as it was taken to battle. God was the one fighting for Israel, not the ark. And so if the ark was there, it was simply a reminder of God's presence and his uh, promises to his people. The ark was God's throne. It was his seat, in a manner of speaking. In Isaiah 64, 16, we're told that God was, and I quote, the one who dwells between the cherubim. And so this is the place he sought uh, to dwell uh, among his people. God provided a way for the Israelites to approach him by the sacrifice of a substitute. There was a national day of sacrifice that took place once a year. We know it as the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest sacrificed a bull and a goat for his own sin and for the sins of the people, and then he sprinkled the blood on the atonement cover of the ark. This was the one day a year that the high priest and him alone could go behind the veil, beyond the veil, and he did so to sprinkle blood on the ark of the covenant. In Romans 3.25, we're told of Jesus that God set him forth as a propitiation by his blood. That word propitiation is the Greek equivalent of the word translated atonement cover or mercy seat. And so Paul is saying in a spiritual sense, Jesus is the mercy seat. He is the propitiation by his blood. The mercy seat of the Old Testament and the blood sprinkled upon it by the high priest prefigured Jesus Christ. With the coming of Jesus, God provided a new and better way the offering up of his own son for us as a substitute and sacrifice, of permanent atonement. His death on the cross was the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. While in evangelical theology we may ask people to rededicate their lives to Jesus Christ if they've become backslidden or fallen into sin, uh, we are not promoting any kind of annual ritual where you come to God again and make sure that you're actually saved. Jesus is the permanent substitute and sacrifice for your sin. When you come to him one time uh, and receive salvation and then begin to walk with him. We have no need of the ark. Uh, And so while it's interesting uh, to ask as we shall, where is the ark and all of that kind of thing, we have no need of it. Uh, However, it doesn't mean that it won't play some part in the last days. And so secondly, as we close, you go looking for the lost Ark of the Covenant. It's interesting just to think about this. When Jesus was on the earth, there was no Ark in the temple. The Holy of Holies was an empty room. The last time we see the Ark in the Old Testament is just prior to the destruction of the temple by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. (coughs) From that point in the 6th century B.C. forward, no one knows what happened to the ark. Not really. The Jews were held captive in Babylon for 70 years until Persia defeated the Babylonians to become the world-ruling empire. King Cyrus of Persia decreed that the Jews could return to Jerusalem and rebuild their temple. In the book of Ezra, chapter 1, we're given a detailed list of the things that Cyrus returned to the Jews for their temple. The Babylonians had looted the temple before destroying it, and now Cyrus was returning these objects. And here's the list. It says, King Cyrus also brought out the articles of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from Jerusalem and put in the temple of his gods. And Cyrus, king of Persia, brought them out by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and counted them out to Shezbazar, uh, the prince of Judah, 
This Shezbazar is a Persian name for Zerubbabel. That'll become important in a moment. This is the number of them, 30 gold platters, 1,000 silver platters, 29 knives, 30 gold basins, 410 silver basins of a similar kind, and 1,000 other articles. All the articles of gold and silver were 5,400. All these Zerubbabel took with the captives who were brought from Babylon to Jerusalem. Conspicuous by their absence are the sacred vessels of the temple, the golden lampstand, table of showbread, altar of incense, and most notably, the Ark of the Covenant, all of them unaccounted for when Cyrus returns the temple treasures. The Jews rebuilt their temple. It is sometimes called Zerubbabel's temple after the governor of Judah at that time. It's most often called the second temple. And that can be a little confusing because the temple that stood in Jesus' day, known as Herod's temple after King Herod, who oversaw its rebuilding, But since it was more of a remodel, it is considered still the second temple. Solomon's grand temple was the first. Zerubbabel and Herod's were the second. And as we'll see in a minute, there's the promise of a third temple. Now, there was no ark in the Holy of Holies in the second temple ever. Many historical references attest to that fact. For example, in 167 B.C., Antiochus Epiphanes entered Jerusalem and desecrated the temple According to the literature of that time, when he entered the Holy of Holies, he found it to be empty. You might be wondering how the high priest was able to sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, since there was no ark with its atonement cover. The Mishnah is a written compilation of Jewish oral tradition. In the Mishnah, we read this, after the ark was taken away, a stone remained there from the time of the early prophets called Shetiah. It was higher than the ground by three finger breaths. And so there was a, a, a stone that protruded from the ground that supposedly the ark was put upon. And once the ark was gone, all that remained was this stone. And it was on this stone that the blood was sprinkled. And so the ark wasn't there, but they still sprinkled the blood on the stone. Keep in mind also, without God's presence between the cherubim on the ark's cover, there was no light in the Holy of Holies, it was absolutely pitch dark. And so, um, interesting, just to think about this from a religious standpoint, uh, God's glory left the temple during the time of Ezekiel and never returned. Uh, There was never a time after that first temple was destroyed when the Ark of the Covenant was in that temple. And the Jews went ahead with their rituals and their practices, and instead of sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat, they sprinkle it on the, on the stones that were in there. And it must have been really tough on the high priest because you're in the dark uh, in this small room trying to figure out exactly how to proceed. And, and so it's, it's not necessarily comical, but it does show us the inadequacy of that system in terms of approaching God and the superiority of what we have in Christ. Now, there are a few credible theories on what might have happened to the ark and where it might be. The first is simply that it was destroyed. Just because we're not told in the Bible and there's no record in history of its being melted down for its gold, that doesn't mean that it wasn't. There's nothing in the rest of the Bible that demands that the ark be found. Nothing in the Bible says it has to be found before the last days or in the last days. Uh, And, you know, it's an argument from silence, but it's possible that it was destroyed. The second theory is that the ark has been and remains in Ethiopia. 
Through the centuries, Ethiopian Christians have claimed the ark rests in a chapel in the small town of Aksum in their country's northern highlands. They say it arrived 3,000 years ago and has been guarded by a succession of monks who, once anointed, are forbidden to set foot outside the chapel grounds until they die. There are at least two reasonable accounts regarding how the ark came to be in Ethiopia. I will say this, the Ethiopian people are certain it's there. There's a long-held Ethiopian belief that they can trace the ancestry of their kings back to Solomon. The 20th century Ethiopian leader Haile Selassie was given titles belonging to the Davidic kings, such as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He even had it written into their constitution, some of the traditions linking him to Solomon. Now, scholars like to poke holes in the timeline of the Ethiopian stories. They don't seem to really work out historically. But even though the stories may have been revised, I mean, we've all familiar with revisionist history, things that uh, make things seem better than they were or change details, it doesn't mean that the ark wasn't brought to Ethiopia. And so though you might say, well, this particular theory and the timing of it doesn't make any sense, doesn't mean that the ark isn't there. It very well might be, or at least it could be. The third theory on the whereabouts is that it was hidden before the arrival of the Babylonians and that it remains hidden today. An important component of the hidden ark theory is believing that there was a secret vault under Solomon's temple. It makes sense you'd want to be able to rather quickly hide the ark somewhere beneath the temple. Who hid it? Well, some say it was King Josiah. He had been told by Huldah the prophetess that the temple would be destroyed soon after his death. Knowing this, he is said to have ordered that the ark be put in that underground vault, and those who hold this theory say the ark remains there, hidden safely. Jeremiah may have hidden the ark. He was prophesying the coming destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, so he had motive to hide the ark, and there are many Jews who believe he did. And this is interesting. The Temple Institute in Jerusalem, it's that group that is preparing for the building of the third temple in Jerusalem. To that end, they have reproduced all the articles necessary to reinstitute worship. They've reproduced everything except the ark. That's because they believe they know exactly where it is. This is a quote from their website. Tradition records that even as King Solomon built the first temple, he already knew through divine inspiration that eventually it would be destroyed. Thus Solomon, the wisest of all men, oversaw the destruction of a vast system of labyrinths, mazes, chambers, and corridors underneath the Temple Mount complex. He commanded that a special place be built in the bowels of the earth where the sacred vessels of the temple could be hidden in case of approaching danger. Tradition teaches that King Josiah of Israel, who lived about 40 years before the destruction of the first temple, commanded the Levites to hide the ark, together with the original menorah and several other items, in the secret hiding place which Solomon had prepared. This location is recorded in our sources, and today there are those who know exactly where this chamber is, and we know that the ark is there, undisturbed, waiting for the day when it will be revealed." That's a bold statement. We have no way of testing it. It might be true. It might not be true. We do know that a third temple will exist during the seven-year Great Tribulation. Daniel spoke of it prominently, and Jesus verified that prophecy. Imagine what would happen if the lost ark was to be found or brought out of hiding. It would most certainly encourage, if not the demand, the building of a third temple to house it. Since the entire tabernacle and later temple was designed to house this object, if it was found, it would not only prove centuries of Jewish history, 
it would demand for the rebuilding of that temple. As exciting as all that would be, we look beyond that to a great truth in the Revelation. In Revelation 11, verse 19, it says, The temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. The tabernacle on the earth that we're reading about in Exodus, and later the temple, temples 1, 2, and 3, they are copies of what exists in heaven. The ark in heaven isn't the lost ark of the covenant. It's the original. It's the ark we're talking about is a copy of that. So in the tribulation with the third temple on the earth, God will show mankind they have no need of the lost ark. Believers have immediate access to God thanks to the propitiation of Jesus Christ. So they will see heaven open and understand that what's happening in the third temple is not really spiritual at all. What about after the great tribulation? In the 1,000-year kingdom of heaven that follows the tribulation called the millennium, there will be another temple in Jerusalem. Let's call it the millennial temple. According to Jeremiah, that temple will not have the lost ark either. Jeremiah 3, 16 and 17, talking about that day, he says, then it shall come to pass when you are multiplied and increased in the land in those days, says the Lord, They will say no more the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind, nor shall they remember it, nor shall they visit it, nor shall it be made anymore. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord. All the nations shall be gathered to it, to the name of the Lord, to Jerusalem. No more shall they follow the dictates of their evil hearts. Ezekiel describes the millennial temple in great detail, and he never mentions the ark. There's a holy of holies, but it is empty and it is not separated from the holy place by a veil. The lost ark represents what God has gone to great lengths to secure, face-to-face intimate relationship with you. The sin that came between God and mankind will finally be eradicated from the universe. The last thing we read regarding a temple is in the Revelation. In eternity, after the creation of the new heavens and a new earth, and after all the believers from all time are in their forever glorified bodies, the apostle John exclaims, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The fellowship lost in Eden will be restored and then some. The greatest action sequence of all times is imminent. It's the return of Jesus to resurrect the dead in Christ and to rapture living believers. And so while uh, the search for the lost ark is interesting, and while we may, some say it's in Ethiopia and others say it's under the temple, maybe they'll bring it out, maybe they won't. Uh, God looks beyond the ark and says, hey, those days are over. Now you come to me directly through Jesus Christ to my throne of mercy to receive grace in your time of need.